This will be a very news-centric episode because there's a lot going on. So I brought on one of the smartest people I know about current events in technology. Renee Ritchie's here. Hey, Renee. Hey, how are you? Really good. I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. It's been a while. We had a, a quick YouTube crossover at one point, but um, yes, I like this format because we can spend so much more time together. But you've been you've been very busy. You had a lot going on, so I super appreciate you making a little bit of time for me today because if anybody hasn't been watching your YouTube videos, there's some very big news that um, we're, we're like 24 hours behind on. So I'm going to assume people know the extreme basics that there is a 16-inch MacBook Pro that's been announced, but you have one in your hands. Yeah, it's sitting right next to me uh, as, we, as, we, as we speak, as we talk. So let's maybe quickly go through the specs. I think a lot of other people have done some really great break, breakdowns. I mean, people should start with your video if they don't know all the details. But, you know, what's the, the bird's eye view? What got better on this MacBook Pro that we, I, everybody I know has been waiting for for a while now? So there are a few things. I mean, it's not a radical redesign by any stretch of the imagination. It's still the same basic concept, harkening back to that iconic titanium power book so many years ago. And it's it's really very similar looking to the current 15-inch MacBook Pro. It just makes the screen stretch out to about 16 inches, actually exactly 16 inches. So it's just less than, a, than an inch bigger. It does that by eliminating some of the bezels that were on the screen. Uh, but I think like the, the more interesting stuff for us is that it can now go to 8 terabytes of internal storage and 64 gigabytes of RAM, Yeah, which when you're doing big projects... I mean, that's just, I mean, you were one of the people who helped get me hooked on the C200 and shooting in RAW, and that was going to be much more of a pain than Sorry it's going to be on this machine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I, I think a lot of uh, normal people, uh, you know, people that don't have high demand professional workflows will look at some of those numbers and think like that's that's overkill or they'll look at the prices for them and think that's crazy i mean you know especially for the eight terabytes it's uh i, I don't remember how much more it adds it basically doubles the price of the computer yes. or the base model uh, it's like buying a whole other computer but you know what i went for two terabytes on on my macbook and it's it was the single best upgrade I made to it. I've been so grateful that I added that storage. Yeah, and it, it might save me more time than all the other things because what you're not considering is it's not just the the speed of having a local drive, like a really fast local SSD that, you know, the read write off that is amazing, but you're not plugging in hard drives. You're not carrying around extra hard drives. You're not having hard drives get bumped and then disconnected. And, yes, <laughs> which, or fail. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's so many things about it that, just makes your average day go a lot faster. So Max, what impressed me the most, and I think this is the biggest surprise. Like I expected this to be a good computer. The surprise is the price that yeah. it's pretty reasonable. Even if you completely max this thing out, it's still less than $10,000. And if you make your whole living doing this kind of work, it's not, it's not crazy. It's it, which it started to feel like it was getting a little, a little too pricey in the, the last rounds. But now that we've got so much more performance for a pretty reasonable price, like that's the thing that I'm the most excited about here. Not this time, but the last time they bumped the MacBook Pros, uh, they always take you through this little demo area where they have different pros like uh, you know, giga photography and science calculations and 3D modeling and all sorts of things. And they had the production team from Despacito, the uh, YouTube video, 
there. And they were talking about, for them, the bottleneck was speed to client approval. And because they could have the entire video on the MacBook Pro, whenever getting time with the client was so hard that whenever they could, they had everything there. They could immediately push out um, a video they could send to his iPhone, and he could look at it and immediately give them feedback. Like they could say, you see here where you're flossing? That really looks kind of dumb, doesn't it? He goes, yeah, yeah, you were right. Take that out of the video. And that was literally priceless to them. Yeah, no, the, the places that people find bottlenecks are different for whatever their tasks are. Like my biggest problems probably aren't your biggest problems at all. You probably don't even worry about them. And your biggest problems are something I don't run into. I mean, there's so many different ideas of what professional means. And whenever I see Twitter and YouTube comments about it, I I always remind myself like people, there's so much confusion around it because people have such specific ideas of what professional means that I think comes from marketing. If, If you look at the Apple ads around this, which I get it, they make them about cinematographers, photographers, and music producers. That's their, that's, the, that's the sexiest thing to show in an ad, right? It looks great when people are doing that kind of work, but it doesn't tell the whole story that yeah. there are so many different ways of working. There's so many different kinds of photographers or of audio producers or of people that work in filmmaking. There's a whole stack of what you might be doing. Like the specific demands of your computer, if you are just working in like NLE, nonlinear editing like we do, where you just take footage, put it in a row, that is completely different from what you need if you're doing any 3D work at all. You know, you, you're much more reliant on your CPU versus the GPU and all these little things. So anyway, all this is to say, I'm so glad to see that the, the whole, all the specs got nice boosts and you can push them so far. Yeah, and there was a, a surprise I was not expecting. It was the only thing I had to add. Like, I, always, I always do an outline before I go to these things, just so I know what, I'm gonna, what I think I'm going to have to handle. And I had to add a section called audio, because in addition to all the other stuff, it's, the same, it's basically the same chipset, because Intel has not released the MacBook-compatible version of the 10th generation uh, silicon yet, so there's still Coffee Lake refresh. Um, but what they put in was this six-speaker array with basically two inverted woofers it, it sounds like they flattened out a home pod split it in half and stuck it <laughs> on either side of the macbook because it now does dolby atmos audio and i thought that was a joke like when they said it i thought it was just marketing speak but they started playing stuff like and at the same time they added this three three microphone array to the machine which they say is studio quality with a caveat, and that is USB microphone. Like if you're used to recording like we do with like XLR mics, it's not the same as that. But if you have, for example, a blue microphone, that was their goal. And it wasn't to replace your studio, but it was like if you're on the road and you just need to record some audio, they wanted such a high signal-to-noise ratio that you could, in a pinch, use your MacBook. And we heard some samples from singers, and Jonathan Morrison uh, has put up you know, a couple other examples of it, and I used it to record most of my video yesterday, and it, it does perform like a USB microphone, and those were two things I never expected to hear about a MacBook Pro this year. Yeah, I think, or the best example I think is when we forget to hit record on our big mic on a podcast and everything comes through the computer, yes. which I have definitely done before. But it, it's going to be one of those things that once we have it, you start realizing all the applications because you just get used to it being there and then you start using it. And then if you were to go back to a computer with a kind of crappy mic, like we're used to, all of a sudden it feels like it's missing. I mean, 
it's hard to remember that there was even this phase of getting webcams built in where it seemed kind of extravagant at the time. I guess that's, that was a bigger shift than just getting better speakers, yeah. but still getting built in, even a built in mic, actually. I mean, I remember the days where that was a real advantage of being on a Mac instead of a PC is that I could have a built in speaker and my friends would have like those little, like a wand speaker that sounded way worse than my Mac running through their USB on their desktop because the PCs just didn't have anything built in. And then they'd also have to have a a separate uh, webcam. And so it didn't seem obvious at the time, all the advantages of having it built in, but once it's there, you start using it for a million things. And something I haven't heard anybody mention, but I'm sure many people have thought about it is this is also just going to be huge for calls. Like a lot of people's whole use is, you know, FaceTime and Skype and conference calls. And, uh, you know, when they're having, I've done countless, uh, group meetings where we're all just sitting in front of our laptops. We're all just talking into the computer because nobody's going to set up a USB mic. If you know, some like we're all in different locations and you just walked into a boardroom. So everybody is using their built-in mics and those getting better could have really big impacts on all these little go-to meetings and things like that. You know, somebody is going to put this up to their ear at a Starbucks and do a full-on <laughs> Skype conversation. In front oh, of for sure. Yeah. Well, but so that's the big difference. What, what I'd be really curious to hear is like, what does it sound like if you speak into it kind of closely, like at the distance yes. that you should speak to a mic and a, a similar distance if you're speaking into an iPhone? Because iPhones have had great mics for a long time, right? I mean, if you just if you hold it at an appropriate distance, like say, you know, maybe three inches away from your face, talking to an iPhone, it sounds great. Like it's a really, really nice microphone. This is a test on the MacBook Pro microphone. And this is a test on the iPhone microphone. MacBook Pro microphone, iPhone microphone. The problems with both of them is that they're they're gonna be very omnidirectional and that's completely yes. on purpose. Because you're sitting in a boardroom, you got five people around, you want to hear all of them. But if you're doing a voiceover or a podcast, now you're getting all the ambient noise, you're getting the reverb. So that's what will usually deteriorate the quality, probably more than the actual ability of the microphone. Yeah, no, that's very true. And the, again, these are not by no means meant to be replacements for any big fancy setups. But it's to me, it's, it shows one of the things that it, that's just so typically Apple. And that is they started working on the HomePod, and that was... I think five years before they released it, but they started hiring audio engineers and really well-known ones in the industry and building out that team. And then because it's Apple and they have billions of dollars, they built an enormous uh, sound lab on Tantau Drive outside of Apple Park. And you know, I've, I was in there and I was in there with people who've been in these things in other parts of the world. They just said it was massive compared to even normal high-end acoustic labs. And they have a bunch of rooms in there, like minus two decibel rooms and all the things that you would imagine. And they just do a lot of stuff in there. Like the HomePod and the AirPods were obvious, but they did things like they would try to figure out where you were holding your iPhone and then direct the audio from the earpiece towards the best place for you to listen. And we're just seeing that technology now show up in more and more places, including the one I didn't expect, which is because we got the wide audio and everything like that in the in the iPhones. And the iPhone 11 have really good speakers, but I wasn't expecting Atmos in a, in a MacBook anytime soon. Yeah, no, and I think... Those stereo steps forward, like the changes I've seen on MacBook speakers has been a really nice march forward. Like I can hear, I could already hear nice stereo separation in my current 15 inch. So yeah. I 
believe it that it really can get bigger. Like the com- the computers are big enough to have some decent speakers coming out of them, and the fact that they didn't shrink this one, that they let it get a little bit bigger, you know, might have even led into like it not being so difficult to make great audio come out of it because you're not trying to cram it into a smaller and smaller body. Uh, you know, iPads have had great audio, as yeah. they, especially as they got bigger. Yeah, and they let us Pepsi challenge it with. Uh, so they had a room, and they've done this with other products, but they had a room with uh, a Dell, one of the, 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 I'm forgetting the brand, but it was one of the higher end Dells, and uh, the Acer. And they're going to the say Adele the singer. Yeah, well, that would have been fantastic. <laughs> they had a room with Adele. I yeah. wouldn't put that past them. I think she would have won, though. Yeah. Uh, they had the, the Dell computer, the Acer computer, uh, then the previous generation 15 inch MacBook and the 16 inch MacBook. And the 16-inch MacBook just clowned all of them, including last year's MacBook. It was night and day. They all sounded very small, very tinny. And then this thing came on and sounded like a HomePod, uh, which, again, was mind-blowing to me. Nice. No, I'm, I'm really ready for it. Like, all these things that they may feel small in the moment, but once you have it, you'll never be able to go yeah. back. I, I know that feeling. Um, one thing I haven't got really clear answers to yet is what can we – do you know what we can expect out of the new – GPUs. So overall, the moves that I've been very excited to see from Apple this year is we all thought we wanted NVIDIA cards for a long time. Like that was yes. the push from pro users is like, look, we just we can't do the workflows that we need on these uh, you know, sort of not top of the line cards. They're decent, but it wasn't enough. We need NVIDIA to get our work done. But now we're seeing so many uh, serious applications being rewritten with from the ground up metal uh, optimization. So, you know, m- the big 3D apps all have it built in now. Final Cut was rewritten to have metal optimization. And all of this means that they don't need to go to NVIDIA for it. The CUDA cores, the all, all of the, the hype that PC gamers get excited about may not be necessary to get those same speed gains. But I, I think you might know more about where we'll be at uh, with this generation. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting what Apple's been doing. And I think uh, Phil Schiller talked about it, again, on Jonathan Morrison's show today. Uh, and I think if anyone was curious about why Apple doesn't use NVIDIA, he, he pretty much laid it out. It's that um, AMD will let Apple write to the metal. Like literally, well, figuratively the metal because Apple uses the metal mm-hmm. framework, but also to the metal. And Apple, uh, if, and he used a really good example. In the old days, it was inconceivable that you could move from Intel uh, to the discrete GPU. And then there were some third-party utilities that let you do it. And it, was, it seemed very hacky, though. It was just you were stuck to one or you were stuck to the other. And then Apple made it so that it was utterly transparent. It would just move back and forth between them. And that was a Herculean engineering effort and required Apple to do a bunch of stuff. But also AMD had to let them. And I, I don't think it's conceivable given how successful NVIDIA is and how much NVIDIA wants everyone to write to CUDA and write to their, to their intermediary layers, that they would ever cooperate with Apple. I mean, never say never, but it's just highly unlikely that Apple being successful and NVIDIA being successful, that they would work together to the same extent AMD has been willing to. And so Apple has made this thing where the graphics core isn't separate anymore. It's, part, it, it's all running off of metal. It's all part of the same whole. And they can sort of manage where things happen and how they happen uh, with, as an implementation detail. And these just escalate. So you now you have the Radeon Pro 5000M 5, 5, 7 nanometer process, which means they're much more energy efficient. And you get much more performance for, per watt. I think it's 1.5 times the performance per watt compared to the previous generation, uh, which had the Vega Pros. 
And you usually get like 10%, 20% improvement. But I think Apple's sticking with this 1.5 times, maybe 1.8 times performance for some tasks, uh, which is which is a pretty big leap when it comes to year-over-year graphics. Yeah, it sounds great to me. I mean, yeah, we, there's so much challenges that we none of us really understand as well as we'd like to exactly when we're using our GPU, our CPU, multi-threaded optimization or single-threaded, how much RAM do you really need? I think... I always feel like this used to be a little more clear, the designation of what was handling which tasks. But um, I I do know that like I've realized that I use the GPU less than I thought. But I also am seeing this new uh, time of optimization. Actually, for, for some better info on this, you can refer back to the episode when the Mac Pro was on. Uh, you know, I had Olaf, who's a professional 3D artist, talking about how important uh, having Octane adding this optimization is, um, it's going to be a really big thing. But uh, so I was going to say, I mean, Lightroom, for example, there's virtually no GPU acceleration or or optimization of any kind. So as you max out your GPU, it has almost no effect on one of the most popular photo editing apps. Um, But at the same time, there is Capture One on the other side that's kind of been rising up and, and taking more attention. And, and another great one is Pixelmator, which we have the developer on the show as well. And uh, it's written from the beginning yeah. uh, fully f- with Metal in mind. So these, as these things move forward, the, um, the Radeon graphics cards really give those apps a huge boost. So there's more and more incentive for big app developers to invest more heavily in the, the system that Apple wants you to be a part of, and uh, they're finally doing it. I mean, it's just all, it's this has been such a good year for professionals, like in so many aspects. <laughs> That's totally true. And the thing about what you said is also so apt because Apple abstracts so much away because so much of the silicon is an implementation detail. Uh, that's why a lot of the benchmarks that we see, and when people complain about thermals on a MacBook Pro, you've got to be really, really good at benchmarks to understand what you're doing. And unfortunately, most people just download an app and run them, and then throw the numbers up and say, "Oh, this tell." But that doesn't tell you anything because the modern architectures are much more complex. And so, for example, a lot of times you don't know if you're actually hitting the GPU, the CPU, a dedicated encoder block. Like even on this latest generation MacBook Pro, it's still going to the T2 chip to do HEVC encode and decode because that's faster than what Intel can do even on Coffee Lake Refresh. And a lot of the times you're running those tests and you're not knowing or you're, you're using like the Intel toy and you're taking measurements, but a lot of frequencies are changing in between those measurements. And that's why I really like the performance-based testing that people do when they look at uh, mm-hmm. like how a workload, like how a render goes or how you know, calculations go. And I know Apple's pro workflow team is working really hard with Adobe. I think they started with Premiere, but hopefully they'll get to Lightroom as well, just hammering on those and seeing ways that they can work with Adobe to optimize for that sort of modern complex but abstracted architecture we're we're in a really good place for it and it's funny because it's such a turnaround from i don't know how long ago is it like you know maybe a year and a half that things were looking kind of dark i mean there was a moment where i was looking at pc laptops thinking about it i was really like i is there can i keep committing to apple for my most intensive work because it felt like there were moving away from it. Because you know, with the, the last generation of, of MacBook Pros, there was this emphasis on thinness and, um, you know, there's still great machines and the 2018 model that I've been using has, has worked out great for me. Um, but it just, it just felt like there was this shift in emphasis and that can mean a lot in the long run. 
they made a, they made several missteps with the Mac lineup, and I think one of them. There was this moment where Steve Jobs came in and just dropped an iPad in front of the Mac team and said, why can't you do this? And that got us the MacBook Air. And the more the, more the Mac team made things like the, Mac, like, the, like the iPad and the MacBook Air, the more popular they become and the more they sold. And Apple started vastly outselling Macs with iPhones and iPads. And those customers were way more mainstream and they, they didn't have the same sort of buying uh, uh, criteria that traditional Mac users and pros did. And for Apple, like a lot of people to complain about the thinness, but one of their guiding principles was weight. That, you know, even if it's an iPhone, if you can't hold it up for an hour to read your ebook or to read your, or to, you know, or to play your video game or to watch YouTube, then that's a usability failure. It doesn't matter what else it can do if it's just, ah, mm-hmm. I don't want to hold this up anymore. I'm just going to go put it down and not use it. Uh, so and for computers too, if you got tired carrying them in your backpack, or it was a he- so for them they saw a, you know people appreciated it when the laptops got lighter, and those MacBooks as much as they didn't suit me and you, they sold a ton more than Apple had previously sold. So Apple's looking <laughs> right. at it and going, people are complaining about these, but there are bestsellers, and it, it, it there are a lot of. I have that. I, I want to be sensitive because I have this feeling that everyone, th- like you know, anyone who lives even a block north <laughs> yeah, than yeah. you is a northerner. Doesn't matter how far north you live. It's like anybody who does your workload or more is a pro, and anybody who does even slightly less is not a real professional. And I don't want to say that, but we have this whole new thing where, sure, developers want powerful machines, but there's a whole league of of, mm-hmm. of developers now who don't need that kind of powerful machine, and there's a bunch of. Uh, Startup, you know, startup entrepreneurs who consider themselves professional, but they don't have the same requirements as a as a game developer, uh, and that was a real sweet spot for them. And they bought tons of those. It was sort of aspirational more than functional. And I think that Apple had a big wake up call when they when they started listening to traditional pros saying, "I can't use this anymore. Bye. I'm going to Windows." And they realized that okay, we we can make products like the new MacBook Air that better suits those people, and then we can go back to servicing our pros better with. MacBook Pros that are really mean that really mean what's in the yeah. Name. I think there's this disconnect of the last generation machines probably made a lot more sense to a lot of those aspirational buyers, which you know I absolutely don't look down on. I mean, I do this in other areas where I want to buy. I don't know podcasting. Yeah. I want to have the best podcasting mic that the professionals use. I mean, mine. I bought mine because yes. Leo Laporte uses this mic, so it must be good. But, you know, not that many people listen to my show yeah. relative to the, the the big professionals in this industry, but I want the one that the pros use. And, you know, I don't want to be looked down on for that. Yeah. And, you know, my, my dollars should still matter. You know, I should still get the quality that I expect. So when when I go spend that kind of money on something that I'm an aspirational pro, the the things that will impress me will be different, but the true professionals out there that are going to push it to the limits, they might start walking away from it. So what Apple can end up in the position of, or let's say this yes. theoretical microphone company, um, if the professionals start dropping it because they say, well, like, look, you you made it work for all these aspirational people that bought it because I use it, but now as a professional, I need something else. That's not going to be very sustainable in the long run. Now people are going to start to aspire to whatever the other thing is. You know, they're going to be like, oh, well, the professionals all use NVIDIA cards, so I need one too. Um, You know, but obviously I think Apple's had this wake up call. I I don't need to lecture them on it because they seem to be moving forward in this way. And it's really great to see. Yeah, like you said, it's been a really good year for pros. And I think one of the most telling things is when they first introduced these new MacBook Pros in 2016, they had a version that was made as an upsell for the MacBook Air, which kind of told you 
the way that they were targeting them. And now they don't. But man, do they have models right. on top that are meant well, for the highest uh, what did What did we miss in specs? Well, we, oh, we didn't talk about the, laptop, the keyboard yet. We we have a hopefully completely yeah. fixed all the problems keyboard. Is that is that what I can hope for? Yeah. So what they did was they went to the Magic Keyboard. Because you know, I, I said this, Gruber said that A lot of people have been saying this for a while is that Everybody loved the Magic Keyboard. You know, it, it was just a really, really great com- keyboard. One of the best computers Apple made, and they just never put it in the new Mac Pros, the new MacBook Pros. And the butterfly keyboards, and it, there's going to be a lot of hot takes on this, and it has nothing to do with Johnny Ive, and it's not, there's no conspiracy theories. It's just that Apple likes to try to reinvent things, and they did it with the Magic with the trackpad when they got rid of the physical button, and people pushed back really hard at first, and Apple's like, just try it. Just try it. And then people are like, yeah, it's the best trackpad ever. Like, see, we told you so. And Apple gets pushed back on so often that their default position is mm-hmm. give them a little bit of time. They'll come around to seeing it our way. It's that old Steve Jobs thing about we only take one Babe Ruth swing at a ball and we have to knock it out the park every time. But nobody knocks it out the park every time. You're going to miss once in a while. And they do. And because they have this built-in resistance saying, well, give them a little while. They're going to come around to our point of view. It, take, it takes them a while to realize yeah. that, no, 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 you actually got this one wrong. So they, they're first, and when you get something wrong, you can either try to fix it or you can revert. Like they made the buttonless iPod shuffle, and they reverted that in a year. There was no fixing that thing. But this, they thought, well, it's, it's, we still think it's better, but we're hearing complaints, so let's see if we can do X, Y, Z. And it turned out that that just did not help. So they've gone back to the scissor switches. They didn't go back to the original 2015 MacBook Pro keyboard because they still don't like the way that wobbles. They wanted something that was more stable. So they took what was in the Magic Keyboard, and because that's angled and it's on a desktop, they had to make some architectural changes to get the sort of same uh, feeling or the same, um, the same vibe that they got on the, Mac, the iMac keyboard. So what they did is they created these new... Uh, rubber domes that when you push down they sort of store a lot of kinetic energy and then when it pushes back up it's it locks there for a split second so it gives it a little bit of a punch it's not quite as flippy floppity or uh you know wiggly jiggly as the 2015 keyboard but it has those way more reliable scissor switches and it doesn't have that same sort of seal that is supposed to keep debris out but once debris gets in it can never get out again it's sort of like a one you know one-way mirror uh, and it, it builds on those things to give you what is a much better typing feel, right. sort of a best of both. I hope it's going to take a while to test it out, but I hope the best of both worlds. And then they also went back and said, yeah, yeah, you really need a discrete <laughs> escape key. So the escape key is separate now. The touch ID button is separate now the way it is in the MacBook Air. And blessedly, there's an inverted T arrow keys now, so you don't have to fumble around for them every time. Yeah, you reach one them. thing that didn't really click with me until people were talking about the key travel and stuff, like the, re- I mean, if anybody wasn't following the story too closely, what was happening is like very small debris would cause keys to completely not work. And just I finally visualized that in my head. I'm like, oh yeah, of course. So if there's a piece of sand and it is the it occupies the full distance of the key travel, as soon as it gets under there, yes. it's 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 just going to be stuck there, right? There'll be pressure on both sides if the key moves at all, so it won't be able to knock itself loose. But as you even just by increasing the key travel without necessarily changing the mechanism, now that same piece of sand, if it gets under there, it still has the ability to to move around. Like it can get back out because it is relative. You know, there's I don't know if there's like a millimeter or something of travel, but the piece of sand is like yep. point three millimeters, so it can it can dislodge itself. So. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- hopefully this solves all the problems. I haven't really run into it yet until actually, no, actually last night um, I was on a plane and my delete key started getting real sticky. So I'm a little worried about it, but yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll see. So it's happened to me. Like, I, it, like full disclosure, I've had keyboard problems with the old scissor switches too. And it was the same thing. Like, like my E key stopped working. I took it in. I had to pay 300 bucks to have the whole top changed. And I brought it back, but like it, it was, right. it was an incident back then. It wasn't a trend like it was with the butterfly ones, and also the domes. The original domes would sort of wear out or, or or warp a little bit, and then you wouldn't you would get the repeat keys or you wouldn't register properly. Um, and they fixed the material in that with the, the previous generation, but this has rubber domes. Hopefully, they won't be susceptible to the same sort of problem that the metal domes. So, were. what's your take on keeping the touch bar? You know, I don't think the touch bar is terrible. It doesn't bother me very often although i think there are certain contexts where it can be an actually worse experience but at the very least i don't know anybody that actually sees it as better like i i don't know anybody that would tell me they they really missed it if it went away Um, do you know do you know what apple's perspective is on this like why do you feel like they're so connected to it there are a few people i've met and they're mostly coders or or editors like film or music editors who have customized it to the extent and made it muscle memory to the extent that it is hugely Mm -hmm. productive for them but they are by far the exception and not the rule because you know most people just don't take the time most people just use defaults on everything i wanted to use it when before i got it i was like i'm gonna be the one i'm gonna be the guy that figures this out and makes it really useful and i just have not been able to at all Uh, i I haven't found any real uses i use it to scrub tabs i've never found anything that scrubs tabs as fast in safari as the track as the touch bar right Yeah. yeah you just touch it and you swipe and it goes through all your tabs real quick but you know, I, Apple must see the same things that we're both saying. Like I, they, you know, they're they're paying just as much attention as we are, if not a whole lot more. So um, I don't know. I'm just I'm just curious how they look at it. Like they 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 want it to work. I know why they think it's a good idea. Like I can see all the reasons that it's still, even though it hasn't quite caught on, still feels like no, there might be something here. But, yeah, there was a, uh, a good thread on Twitter many a couple of years ago when it first came out from Victor Webb, who spent I forget like. 10 years at Apple working on it and then left before it shipped. But it, it was, it's this huge multi-year undertaking that's part of Apple's whole taptic um, system where they, uh, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but there is a patent that was written about 20 years ago, Brilliant Woman, um, and it, I think it was called Sandpaper, and it was a way of making artificial textures. And I think the long game here is virtualizing control surfaces so it'll feel mm. like a keyboard or it'll feel like dials for logic or it'll feel like sliders for final cut i've always or, loved that you, idea yeah it, it will it'll just be what you need and they're just not there yet and this is their way of starting to work through that and i hope they would get to some form of haptic feedback at this point like i was really hoping when they said they kept the touch bar that they would say and now it has haptics but you yeah. know that be beyond the really bad webcam <laughs> they still have in here. The, the, the lack of haptics in here was one of my disappointments, but I think they're still building towards that. And we've seen like really uh, PCs now, PC laptops with really big second screens that, that look right. useful. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah, it's true. And this is still a small one, but I think over time uh, it's, it's going to become more important and they're just getting their foot in there early. All right, well... I'll keep waiting and seeing. I, <laughs> I will clarify the times that it's frustrating, just so it doesn't sound like I'm complaining about nothing. The best example is when I'm trying to, let's say, adjust the volume. Yeah. This is what this has happened a few times. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, music just started playing and it's way too loud and there's a lot of people around me and now I feel like an idiot. Yeah. Quick, turn it down. And I reach and I accidentally hit 
the brightness button. And now I moved into a new contextual menu where I have no access anymore to the volume slider. So now I have to find the way to exit that then enter back into volume and then hit it. And then also, you know, I can easily miss the mute button. Like there's a lot of details about it that end up being a slightly worse experience. So yeah, no, absolutely. But glad to see the escape key. That's nice. (laughs) Um, what else? What else are we missing? I don't want to. I mean, this is big news, but uh, you know, hopefully, I'll have one in hand soon, so we can circle back around and we'll talk some more about this. But um, what what did we miss? Is there any more exciting stuff to to know? Oh well, okay. Here's just like one thing that I just before uh, we got on this call, I was listening to ATP. Marco was talking about his build times for uh, Overcast. Yeah, were thirty nine seconds on his iMac Pro. And 40 seconds on the new 16-inch. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about that, but that was that was one of the more exciting things I've seen so far. Those numbers really seem crazy to me. They have a new thermal system. So, um, I mean, people before complained about putting an i9 into a constrained uh, chassis the way that they did with the previous generations. And, you know, part of that was Intel just never getting past 10 nanometer, never getting down to 10 nanometer. But part of Mm -hmm. it was also they saw enough of um, a performance boost to people whose workflows were really intermittent, like people who just needed quick bursts of speed that they didn't think there was any value in not putting them in at all. So, you know, if they figured if it benefited some people's workflow, that was fine. But what they did with this is they have a whole new thermal system that lets them sustain uh, peak frequencies for much longer. So it doesn't theoretically go any faster, but it can stay at a, at a high speed longer. It's almost like your, your Ferrari used to be in stop-and-go traffic, and now there's just a little bit of highway in front of you. Yeah, this, I mean... I think a lot of this optimization stuff that um, you know we just see in terms of like oh less power consumption, less uh, less heat per processed unit, like uh, all these little things that just feel like they're for efficiency's sake. Yeah. We have to remember that all this efficiency doesn't mean that the computer doesn't typically mean that the computer just runs more efficiently. It usually means that we use it and we do more with it. Yes. So yeah, totally. Uh, in the, in the end, it's going to mean you know, fa- faster everything. And um, yeah, no, things are, and things Apple are looking philosophically will run at thermal limits, like from the Apple watch to the MacBook pro, they will run things right. that they have no problem running things at thermal limit. Yeah. Cool. Well, okay. I'll follow up more on this once I have one. And um, for now, well, the, the last thing I think that it, that is going to be appealing to people is the bigger battery. So they went all the way up to oh, yes. 100, which is the legal limit according to the FAA if you want to ever take anything on a plane and it did make it a little bit bigger and did make it a little bit heavier and Apple is willing to do that they've done it with iPhones for water sealing and for other things over time or for better better materials they are willing to do it when they think that it's worthwhile and this time they thought it was worthwhile for the battery so you can get like it's not it's not going to be the same when you're running Final Cut Pro but if you're doing like web surfing it'll take you from 10 hours to 11 hours of battery but it also lets them run um, at higher voltage and it lets them charge it um, at slightly higher voltage. That's what I was imagining most of it was about because seeing one more hour of battery life isn't proportional to the size increase. Yeah. But yeah, my expectation is that it'll, it'll end up being represented in performance and in various ways that I don't quite understand. Yeah. I'm, I can't wait to get this computer in my yes. hands. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, if anybody's wondering, I mean, so I'm not, I'm not buying one right away. I'm hoping to just review one for now. We'll we'll see we'll see what happens, but uh, stay tuned. I do want to follow up though on something that is already in my hands, and I'm I'm late on reviewing because I didn't get it at the same time as everyone else. We were in Mexico when the AirPods Pro were released, 
And uh, last episode, I had them waiting for me at home. I now have gotten home, received them, and traveled with them. And so I guess I guess I have some some thoughts and opinions. And uh, nice. Renee, your thoughts and opinions are already available online. So again, yes, uh, check out your especially your YouTube channel to see what you've had to say about it. Main thing, I'll, ju- I'll jump right to the the heart of all this. I really like them. They are ex- like they are some of the best headphones I've ever used. I'm very sad to say that the left one hurts my ear oh, no. a noticeable amount. It is not comfortable, which I've heard people complain about it for years with the, you know, Mar- the, again, Marco was one of those guys that said that the original AirPods just didn't really fit right for him, didn't feel okay. And when you hear people talk about it, you're like, oh, that's too bad for you. But, uh, you know, they work great for me. So I love my AirPods. Now that all of a sudden I'm one of the ones that like, uh-oh, this kind of hurts a little bit. I really feel like I'm being left out of a, an amazing experience. Um, I don't think it's bad enough that, oh, well, it's definitely not bad enough that I'm just going to stop. Like I can, I can wear them. It's not extremely painful. It's just mildly uncomfortable. And on a plane ride, I'm really noticing by the end of the four hour flight I was on, I, uh, I had to start taking them out. Like I was kind of taking breaks where I'd take one side out and put the other side in. Um, and that's just not, it's not ideal. Um, and, so what you're probably thinking is like, oh, well, you should switch the tips because you know, each tip might have a better fit for your ears. But the part that is at issue is the hard plastic on the, the wider part of the headphone. So that is just slightly pushing out little parts of my ear. It's not a lot of pressure, but it doesn't take a lot to create yeah. discomfort there. So, Oh, that's terrible. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, well, so I'm going to keep wearing them. I, I kind of think what will happen is these will still end up becoming my, my airplane headphones. Uh, I do think I'll fly with them because they work. I, I find they work as well at noise reduction as my Sony over ear headphones. Um, yes, they're probably not, they're probably not identical. If I like really did the side by side, which I didn't. I um I just you know. I know what my Sony sound like and it was, they were completely acceptable in every yeah. way. You know, I would feel confident editing a podcast or a video, which that's why I need noise canceling. It's not just to enjoy my music more, but I can't work on any audio on a plane yes. if I, if I don't have that. So I'm really grateful for that aspect of it. And the fact that they're so much smaller than the Sony's means I'm, pr- I'm probably going to take that little bit of discomfort uh, in exchange for the size. I mean, it, I, it's going to really have a, a big advantage being able to have that little thing in my pocket instead. But they probably won't be my everyday yeah. uh, headphones. So the, the moral here is try them first in some yes. in some way. What, do you know, what is the actual Apple Store procedure for trying these? Like, are you able to just walk in and stick them in your ear somehow? Yeah, so they're, they're doing something similar to what they've done with Beats and with AirPods before where they have a try-on experience where you go in and they bring out a little tray with AirPods and you can just try them on and see if they like them. And I believe for the AirPods Pro, they'll give you different sets of tips to try as well. So you can, if, if the first one isn't perfect for you, you can try the different ones. So I'd recommend both doing that, but then also, I mean, okay, the sales associate might get a little impatient with you. Leave them in for as long as you can before uh, you know exhausting the patience of your uh, kind Apple Store people. Because for me, I, I don't think I would have noticed if I had just put them in for one or two minutes. Um, it really took a, a, you know, at least like five minutes to start realizing what was happening, and just kind of like touch, use your finger to feel around your ear and just look for like pressure points. Like, is this making hard contact in places that it it 
maybe yeah. shouldn't be. Um, but and take them back uh, if you do buy them. And yes, end up bothering you. Yeah, take them back. yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, if they're really uncomfortable for you, take them back, and um, you know, don't feel bad for if you're the kind of person that always gets the pro everything, which I can fall into that trap. I want the best of the best for everything all the time. I've already, I've already admitted that about myself. I always want the the most expensive best one. But you know what? This is a case where the most expensive best one may not be the right option yeah. for everyone. Um, if they fit you, they probably are the best option. They're amazing. Um, but you should just be aware of whether or not they do before you commit to them long term. And I'm also hoping there'll be some third party. I don't think Apple will do an official program, but because the connector is probably easily duplicated, there'll be third party yeah. foam options and other options over time. Yeah, I'm completely sure there are, and that might have an impact on it. Um, but I, you know, before before I stop talking about it, I do want to weigh in a little on the auto quality and stuff. It's amazing. <laughs> it has a lot more bass. It sounds. It just generally sounds more present. Um, and a lot of those biggest improvements are, I think, often come from the fact that, from the noise canceling. So the fact that it is further into your ear. And you're not hearing the outside world means you can listen at quite a bit lower of a volume. So I think it's it's stressing the actual speaker a little bit less. Just everything about it. I mean, it really comes in sounding much cleaner, uh, especially for music. I don't find that um, in rocking around the city, usually what I'm doing is listening to podcasts. If I'm just you know in explore mode. And uh, in terms of that, I can hear people's voices just as well in previous AirPods. But in the new ones, it, uh, it really makes music sound substantially better. So, yeah, they're great. I really, really like them. Um, just uh, find out if they're for you before you, you drop the cash on them. Then uh, you've, got, you've got a new toy that I want to talk about a little bit. Uh, you, since you were here last, you have massively upgraded your camera. You've got a C200 now. Yeah, I mean, it started off with, I think, you and then Martin, and then you again, and then my <laughs> friend Dave Wiskus, who runs Standard Broadcasting and a bunch of different, uh, has a bunch of different YouTubers, uh, always buying all new equipment. Uh, and then you know, we, we were talking for a while, and I'm, I mostly do A-roll, and this just it just looks so pretty. And I, I used to, sh- well, I still do. I have a, a Canon 5D Mark III, and I have a bunch of lenses for those. And I bought the GH5 because it just made sense for me at the time. But I was starting to look at buying more lenses for it. And I really like just the way that Canon looks, just the way they do color, the way they do imaging, all of that. I love the look of it. And I figured if I'm going to splurge, if I'm going to dive in, now is a good time to do it. And you were so kind. You answered so many. I, would, I can only imagine for you must have been the most inane questions for me imaginable. And really helped me no, out. No, I mean, I went through all that same stuff. Like, there's there's a real learning curve on on going to a bigger camera. And, you know, when people are... I tried to get this across in the video that I did before I bought my C200. But people should really try to be as aware as possible about what they're getting into if you're about to go get your first really big camera upgrade. Um, you know, even if that just means that you're moving to full frame from a micro four-thirds camera it can mean a lot of big changes. Your tripod has to get a little bigger. You have to get new lenses. Like you have to be ready for it. You have to be ready for the file size. So now your hard drive expectations change. Like it affects the whole stack, your whole workflow, your whole life. So it's really good to be prepared for this stuff. Yeah, and I'm just touching the cert. Like I've just started trying to shoot in RAW and the first video took me probably eight times longer than it usually does and just trying to get it 
in trying to get it out. Um, but it, I'm enjoying it. Like, it's just so much fun to work on all this stuff. Have you had any big disasters with it yet? Like I, I ran into a few times where I just did raw wrong when I first got it. Uh, yep. Have you had any big problems? I I did, and I managed to salvage it um, through cloning like projects and rendering it out and pulling it back in. I just I, it looked great in Final Cut, and I just couldn't get it out of Final Cut. I think because Final Cut was in HDR, and I did not want to upload in HDR. Because uh, uh, I didn't know how well YouTube would support it, and I tried to put it back into SDR, and then it just looked like a gray mess. Yeah, and yeah, we're in a weird in between place for HDR stuff. Like we're not, we haven't quite hit the point where it makes sense for average people to, like you know, YouTubers to kind of work in that space a lot of the time. Uh, there's a lot more work that goes into it, and then you don't really know how people are going to experience it when it comes out. Yeah, um, but it, you know, it's obviously the future. We're just it's not evenly distributed yet. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear more about it as you as you go along your journey of jumping into a bigger camera and, uh, you know, when it feels right for you. Because you, you still shoot a lot of your B-roll on the iPhone. Is that right? Yeah, I do. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, and one hand, it's just, it's really convenient. I can take it almost anywhere. I don't need a lot of equipment. I don't need any setup. I can get the files off it if I have an adapter, if I don't have an adapter, uh, it's it's usually very good about consistent color, but it it's just it's limited in some ways. Like it, it has no real depth of field. Like you can try to force mm-hmm. it in very specific situations, but it doesn't it doesn't just it, there's there's no depth of field like there is with a normal camera, and it's not it doesn't handle variations in light. Like even for my video on the MacBook Pro, some of the shots are yellow because I just I I, I had to choose between blue and yellow. There was just no way the camera <laughs> right. got enough information to let me fix both. Uh, so I, I always think about it. I go back and forth because I see like your B-roll or I see like Marquez's or John, someone's B-roll. I'm just like, ah, I've got to do that. Um, but I, I haven't found a good way to do that yet. So yeah, I'm still shooting a lot of it on the iPhone. Yeah, I mean, it creates its own challenges for sure. I was talking about on the last episode that I was including it in some of the professional shoots we've done lately because there were just moments where the extra dynamic range looked so much better that it was worth choosing the iPhone. And that definitely doesn't happen for every shot. I mean, because certain shots wouldn't have much depth of field anyway. And those are the times when I choose to do it. So like wider shots where everything is further from the camera, you don't spot that it's a smaller sensor because it's all going to be in focus regardless of what you shoot it on. So that's a prerequisite for if I'm going to use it or not. And then, yeah, I mean, there's times that just sucks in all the extra detail from the windows, uh, things that are completely blown out otherwise. And that's when I'm like, yes, this is worth it. So, I, I mean, I, yeah, it's just about choosing the kind of the right environments for it and making the, the right sets of trade-offs. But. Well, it's like if your screwdriver is your pocket knife. I mean, that's super easy to carry around. You can do a lot of things with it, but sometimes you're going <laughs> right, to but it's not necessarily like a set the of tools. best screwdriver in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Um. I also needed to, I wanted to finish my story from last episode, which uh, I, I don't know how caught up you are on it. I know I, know I was tweeting about it. My I phone read your tweet. I'm still two episodes behind. Yeah. It, uh, so this was, this was one of the more painful <laughs> experiences of my life I, uh, as far as technology goes. I've never had a phone stolen before, but it was picked from my pocket when we were in Mexico. And then the, the story continued a bit that... Um, even worse, uh, our iCloud password was fished. Um, so 
the, uh, you know, basically what, right when we were resetting passwords, my wife got a text saying, uh, you know, you've tried to reset your password. She didn't realize that I hadn't just clicked that because she thought I was, you know, at some points I'd been forwarding some stuff to her phone. So she just thought I had just sent her a reset thing. And um, anyway, long story short, they, they got my iCloud password, which is kind of the worst case yeah. scenario with all this. That's, that means they're in. Um, but what ended up happening is I had a bunch of issues after that with two-step verification. What they appeared to have been doing is just going in so that they could turn off lost mode from the phone so that they could sell it. When I was able to log in, they hadn't changed the password. It doesn't seem like they had touched anything else. They had just removed any iPhone that I'd ever had on my find my iPhone account. Um, and uh, you know that just meant that the, now the phone was theirs. They could um, erase it. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not really concerned about them having gotten into it. There's no indication that they were able to access any data on it. But it was my trusted device, and we were traveling, so I couldn't get a new SIM card. Um, I immediately canceled my old one, but my MacBook Pro wouldn't accept the verifications codes that it was receiving from two-step authorization or verification or whatever. So I'm sitting here in the states, and I don't know if they're still in there. I don't know what's happening. And it, what it made me aware of, and I guess kind of the, the only reason I really want to talk about it is to make other people aware of is that when you do two-step, you are to some extent adding a layer of security. You know, it, it can keep people out in certain situations, but you are also locking, potentially locking yourself out a little bit more too. And I really experienced that because I, I just had nothing to fall back on, you know, like I, the people I'm speaking to at Apple, um, they said they believed me uh, and, and knew who I, I, I am, but they don't have, they can't override it because it wouldn't be very secure if you could just call someone up and say like, look, I'm Joe Schmo. Can you please unlock this account for me? And they do it. Um, I don't know. So it was this really interesting situation of being locked out of my own account for a while for the rest of our trip. And as soon as I got home, fortunately, I was able to get a new SIM card and that uh, did work. That aspect of two-factor instantly worked when they texted me a verification code it accepted it and i was able to take my account back so that's where that's where things are right now they're so aggressive like i've had problems with my apple id just because when i there've been some events where they've added several devices and i've gotten them to review and then i've tr- i've triggered apple security because there's a velocity is one of the triggers like how many times you try to add a device how many devices you try to add Right, uh, and then trying to enter my password and all of those triggered something else because they're not used to you tri- entering your password that often, and it just it mm-hmm. kept snowballing until I was completely locked out, and then had to reset the password on a bunch of devices, and that triggered it again. And I, I just I went <laughs> right. to I went to L.A. for VidCon for the first time, and I tried to buy something on Amazon, and it wasn't used to me being in Los Angeles, so it forced a password reset and then locked me out because I was trying to reset the password, and I don't. I didn't have any, like, it didn't ask me for two-factor. I have it set up. Didn't even ask. Lock me out before I got to that. Right. Oh, so it's funny. exactly what you're saying, is that we're making we're making fortresses so secure we can't get in or out of them. Yeah, and it just, it makes me realize that, well, not realize, I already knew this, but it it reminded me that, like, security is not at a, at a perfect place yet. And yes. as we lock down certain aspects in all the right ways, like, opening and closing a phone, I feel like is in a really good place. Like I, you know, I trust that system pretty well. Um, I, it's so funny that it feels like 
the whole issue with San Bernardino felt like a real PR coup for Apple because seeing like, oh, the U.S. government can't get inside an iPhone really makes the iPhone look pretty good, right? It, it makes it feel like, oh, if it's secure enough for the U.S. government, then it's secure enough for me. Um, but uh, then on, on the other side, the real security risks are, well, they're you, first of all. I mean, that's how they got got to us is through social engineering and just sort of making us feel stressed and panicked and do things that, you know, we wouldn't otherwise do, click links that we'd usually be smart enough to avoid. And, um, yeah, it's uh, the, the holes that they're going to get in through are not necessarily where you expect. Yeah, no, absolutely true. And you're going to get caught when you... And the worst part is that the triggers for the security stuff happens when, when we're traveling and it's the least are least able to handle them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that, I mean that's that's what they're counting on. So, yeah. But let's uh, let's end today on a up note. Uh, We've got Disney Plus that was released yeah. recently, and of course Apple TV Plus, which was a little bit earlier. But I'm just catching up on both of them now. In in traveling, it was and get, and getting locked out of my Apple account, my iCloud account. I wasn't able to watch Apple TV until recently, so now I've finally been able to sample some of the shows. Um, so I guess we'll start there before Disney. Uh, I got to watch some episodes of C, and yep. I liked it. And um, I can't tell yet how much other people... Uh, C doesn't seem to be the one that as many people are talking about, but I think it's pretty good. Um, I don't watch a lot of shows because of time, but I was like, yeah. look, I got I, like, I want to know what app, where Apple is with their TV stuff. Like, how did they handle this release? And you know what? It's, it, it seems pretty great based on that one show sampling. I've watched the first three episodes of C, and I appreciated it more because Steve Aquino, who's a really good writer, he does a lot of accessibility stuff, um, sort of shared a lot of thoughts about how Apple had engaged That's exa- with the community. Was it, was, did he tweet about it? Is that yeah. the tweet that I saw? That's yeah. exactly when I was like, look, I got to watch it now. Because the, the, seeing the behind-the-scenes stuff was so interesting. I think Tim Cook retweeted it, yeah. and it totally worked on me. I'm like, wow, this is really amazing how thoughtful they were about the the you know the implications of the whole world losing their vision and and being connected to the current community of people that um, you know aren't aren't able to see or have limited visibility or yeah. all these also, issues is really amazing. I've checked out the first three Dickinson episodes, which is wild because it's a, it's a historical ja- drama done as a modern show and the morning show. And not to be too geeky about it, but it, they look. Both Apple TV and Disney Plus, the quality they're pushing, the bit rate they're pushing, the HDR 4K, but just the amount of bits they're sending is amazing. It looks yeah, so absolutely. Good. I mean, I've had this issue with other streaming devices where, uh, you know, actually with HBO and uh, stream Game of Thrones, like I know how expensive this show is to make, so it should look amazing. And when it looks kind of crappy, I'm very disappointed. And yeah, the, the, I found that the best example is that one episode that everybody complained about of yeah. Game of Thrones, the the Long Night. Is that was I don't yeah. remember the exact title, but the very dark episode. I found all of those issues were a mix of compression, uh, HBO not pushing out a high quality, high enough quality video, and then also people's TV settings being too dark. I do not. I don't really think this was well. It was an, it was the director and, and cinematographer's fault to the extent that they didn't predict how bad people's TVs are. Um, but you know that was that was really the problem, I think. And it feels like right out of the gate, both Apple and Disney want to impress everybody with the quality, yeah. and it looks it looks really good. 
in, but in terms of Disney, how how much have you been able to see so far? Have you been able to watch anything? Yeah, so I tried to sign up when I was in uh, New York, but it only let me sign up as an American in New York. Oh, right. I couldn't find a way to get the Canadian site. So I signed up as soon as I got home, which was just a couple hours ago. And like any self-respecting nerd, I went immediately um, to to check out some of the Marvel stuff because that just hasn't been available as far as I know in 4K HDR like this before. And some of the Star Wars, like the original Star Wars movies, which just look, and I, I understand George Lucas was messed with them before they came to Disney Plus. <laughs> I, I accept that, but just watching Tatooine in the original Star Wars in 4K HDR, I, I was like a little like a little child again. Well, yeah, those are the things I wanted to talk about. So uh, you you haven't seen the Mandalorian yet? Um, no, I've seen know. the trailer, I, not the show. I think I I'll try to do a full episode about it once it's done season one, maybe I'll, I'll, okay. I'll go into more detail, but so no spoilers here. Um, I did enjoy it. I, I am going to watch all of them. I think it's worth investing the time into. And then I went straight to the restored star Wars, the yeah. original trilogy. And this is by far the best looking star Wars I've seen. Um, you know, maybe I didn't do a side by side, but at least on par with the fan restored one, which I'm forgetting the name of right now, but you know, where they compiled all of yes. the best scans and did all the restorations themselves. Um, that, that has always looked really fantastic. This looks, this looks really, really good. Like, and it reminds me how well this film holds up visually. Um, the, 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 like the little details that makes it look seventies are not a problem and don't interfere with anything like the amount of quality that's held on to there is just incredible and if you haven't watched star wars for a while now's the time it's amazing because it's 35 millimeter i think it was 35 millimeter and practical effects whereas the prequels which also look you know as best as they possibly could was shot in 2k and has i think pitch meeting called it sony playstation 2 graphics yeah unfortunately i mean and you can't so the restoration of the old ones going to 4K, like that 4K, the only degradation is going to be noise, really, or maybe some problematic matte paintings or more likely CG from 1999 that wasn't yes. done well enough. Poor compositing. I think they fixed most of that over time. Yeah, actually, the compositing fixes look like some of the best restoration things that happened in the 90s. Uh, you know, but it's things like Chaba confronting him and Han in front of the... yes. Uh, Millennium Falcon, those are the things that, I don't know. Oh, and also, I guess I have more Disney things. I went to Disneyland in between, and I got to see the, uh, what's it called? The real Millennium Falcon. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the one thing is that I'd seen a lot of photos that now I'm realizing were Disney World. And so seeing the Disneyland thing, I'm like, oh, it's actually quite a bit smaller than I than I realized uh, what, what they had set up there. So it... it from my own expectations, I was slightly disappointed in the scale of it. But they, I mean, obviously, they did a great job because it's Disneyland and that's what they do. But yeah, yeah, no, that whole thing is really. And I, I think they've only got one or two of the sections open, and it's just going to keep. It's going to keep populating, almost like the Galactic Empire over time. Yeah, I did see the map, and it it does look promising. It's going to be cool. Um, the Millennium Falcon ride, I'll say. Okay, that was actually more disappointing. I enjoyed walking around a lot. Like, I really loved just being in the Star Wars world. And even getting in line for the ride. Like, as you feel like you're walking on the Falcon and you're in those hallways that you know so well, that's an amazing experience. In terms of actually feeling like you're driving it and stuff, I don't know. They're they're leaning so heavily on these screen 
uh, experiences where it shakes yeah. you around and those make me feel a little nauseous okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I'd, I'd love some more r- real life rides, but, but it was fun. Anyway, there'll be a lot more star Wars to come very soon because you know, well, there's more Star Wars yes. coming right up. You're never hungry for, for more of it. And especially lately. So, uh, I think in the next few days, I'm going to watch those old ones again, see how Same. they're looking and, uh, hopefully you get a chance to watch the Mandalorian soon. Yeah, I'm going to watch it tonight or tomorrow night. Renee, thanks so much for coming on. I'm, I'm glad we could do this again, and uh, hopefully we can do something on YouTube sometime. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, any, Literally any time, man. You're a genius and an absolute pleasure to talk to. Thanks, man. Mm-hmm.